Hi, this is Lance Lawyer, author of The We Gear, how good teammates shift from me to we. And you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Wrinkle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Wrinkle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Lance Loya. He is the founder and leads the Good Teammate Factory. He's a former sports coach turned best-selling author, blogger, and professional speaker. He specializes in getting organizations to improve teamwork and create better teammates. He's authored eight books on the art of being a good teammate. Lance lives outside of Orlando, Florida, and is here to talk about his book, The We Gear, How Good Teammates Shift from Me to We. Welcome, Lance. Bill, it is my pleasure to be here. It is my pleasure as well. Tell me, when you were growing up, Lance, Who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? Oh, wow. Obviously, I have a sports background, so I have a heavy influence and there's a, been a lot of, I've just been blessed to have a lot of coaches who influenced me. I'm hesitant to give anyone specific, but I will say that one of the biggest influences on me when I was younger was my high school chorus teacher, this lady named Vicki Smith, and she was just master educator. She just was masterful at connecting with her students, and she really impacted my life and got me to see the world through a different lens. What sports did you play in high school, Lance? I actually have letters in five different varsity sports, and my main sports were basketball, football, and track or baseball. Now, we had an exchange student in my school who was a big tennis player, and tennis wasn't an organized sport in my school at that time. It since it's become, but at that time it wasn't. And the athletic director had this Ford exchange student, Rolando. He won the district and qualified for the state tournament, but he won the individual, but he wanted to do doubles. So the athletic director needed a partner for him. A director means said, look, if you go play doubles with Rolando, I'll give you a varsity letter and you don't have to do anything. You just have to stand on the court. In fact, don't stand on the court. Get out of Rolando's way. He'll win the match anyhow. So I did. I went and I played and I got a varsity letter in tennis too. What I imagine though is that playing these sports didn't leave a lot of time. There's a lot of training that goes into being a good athlete and you also had time for course. What was it that made that appealing? What did Ms. Smith do that led you to commit? time to that when you were so busy with athletics. It's interesting because I have no passion in musical theater. I have no singing talent. In fact, I'm a very poor vocalist. When we were in elementary school, Mitch Miss Smith was our elementary music teacher and every student has to take that class. I was really drawn to her because she's such a magnetic personality and, and she had a, a unique way of making kids take an interest in their life and really making them special, valuable gifts she had. So when we got to older and we got to high school, you get to choose your classes. I said, I signed up for this class that she had, she taught chorus and those things. And it had nothing to do with the form, nothing of my love of music or singing or anything like that. It was her. I just wanted more time around her. The reason was it was how she made me feel. And I've come to appreciate that skill as I've got. How did she convey that she liked you and saw something in you that contributed to the success of the program? Ms. Smith is a classic example of someone I like to refer to in the we gear and they make other people feel good about themselves. Their purpose in life is not their own interest. It's the interest of their team. What Smith did, she was great. At, she connected with you. She really mastered the three most important interactions of any two teammates. Even though she was the class leader, in essence, the, the coach, if you will, the boss, she never saw herself from that capacity. She was always a member of the team. She just happened to have a different role on the team than the rest of us. She mastered those three impactful interactions. When you greet someone for the first time, so your first interaction with Miss Smith was always 
positive, upbeat, energetic. She got you going. She made you feel very welcome to be in her presence or be where you were that day. Then she mastered the the art of the goodbye, how you leave each other. She always left us wanting for more. I mean, frequently her last words were, oh, I can't wait to see you guys back tomorrow. I can't wait to see how far you've come next week. When that was the weekend and you left there, I can't wait to be back there again. She would say things like, oh, I can't wait to see you guys back tomorrow or I can't wait to see your progress by next week. I was like, she sent you home on a weekend. It just made you anticipated her return. She left you eager with anticipation. And the third thing she did, and I don't know that I, I had a label for it back then, but I certainly do now. She was fantastic at recognizing what I called good teammate moves. I wonder if that ever translated to all of the team sports you were playing, either for you or you noticed other people because the chorus, I'm sure, had other athletes in it who would say, hey, I caught you making sure that you passed rather than took the shot when you weren't open. I caught you helping someone out when their lace broke in the training room and you gave them one of your spares. Did something like that occur? Do you remember occasions like that? I don't remember specific occasions, but I know they happened routinely. She was so popular with all of the students in the school you know, her popularity, it wasn't just the, the music kids or the theater kids. She was adored by many. So I don't know if I can think of a specific example, though, to be honest. Do you remember an example of a time when you were early in your career? Maybe you had one of your first responsibilities overseeing someone and some of the influence that she had on you in high school and from earlier came through and it was a decision that you made or an approach that you took to a conversation that wouldn't have happened unless you had been a part of her class and a part of the environment that she created. I had an assistant named AJ and AJ was learning the craft. And I remember the first time that we were on a trip, getting ready to plan a, a road trip for our team. And AJ's job was to pack the uniforms. It's a very important thing for an away team to have the uniforms. We get on the bus and uh, we realize when we get there, we don't have our uniforms with us. What are we going to do now? Do we try to borrow the other team's uniforms? My first reaction, you want to explode at him. You want to go after him. But I remember hearing Miss Smith's voice in the back of my head. So AJ comes to me and said, this is the problem. This is what happened, coach. I called my girlfriend. She's gone to pick up the uniforms. They'll be here shortly, but we're going to be a little late for the game. Maybe we can just, we're just going to rearrange our schedule. We're going to go eat first and then have the team meeting. And by the time we get to the game, the guys will have the uniforms. For the mistake he made, the extent he went to to solve the problem was more impressive. That mattered more to me because it shows that, all right, if I'm not here, AJ's capable of handling us. He could run the ship without me. I don't know if that made me a good leader, but it made me proud of AJ. I caught him doing something right. I praised him for that. That's not an easy thing for a new leader to do, to be able to call someone out and recognize that they came with a solution. Many times managers are always saying to their teammates and their direct reports, don't just bring me problems, also bring me a solution. When you bring the problem to show that you've thought about it and we can discuss it further before we authorize a, a particular direction to go in. But you actually made room for him to share his solution and then praised him for it, which is a really important aspect of that. So I thank you for making that choice and also thank Mrs. Smith's influence for being able to create that opening and that possibility that was there in your life. What are you seeing these days as one of the two or three big challenges that teams are having after we've been in pandemic lockdown and working in hybrid for more than two years? The ideal construction of any team is you want the right people. You want the right people there that have not only the skill set, but the attitude and the temperament to be on your team, to lead your team to success. So a lot of people have gone remote and have taken on different career paths and they've turned Don Quixote and are off chasing windmills, whatever it may be. The workforce and hiring, you may not fill those positions. You may not be the ideal client or the ideal employee on your team. It doesn't change the challenge if you've got to have good team dynamics. So really it's a matter of putting training. How can I train those people to be good team? 
team. That's the challenge. I think of the pandemic or just any condition that caused us to change what we had been doing, whether it's working in offices, but everyone who's worked in multiple offices knows you have to be able to manage remotely. You need to be able to handle things by phone or video conference. So in many respects to me, it wasn't that big of a change because people had different expectations. I think that it exposed a lot of weaknesses, shortcomings, and gaps in processes. Have you seen that as well? Yeah, we've certainly seen that. And I think managers have to change your perspective on it or directors, whoever the leader in the organization, you've got to change your perspective on it. There's a, What's a helpful perspective for people to take? Well, I think for the leader, the perspective is to take is I am part of the team too. I certainly have a different role on a team and I have a different title. My title doesn't entitle me to loyalty. So I've got to build loyalty and I do that by being part of the team and making good teammate moves myself. I think that that is that is important element to remember. With the different managers and business leaders you've worked with, what's the obstacle that many people encounter from being part of the team and just talking to people as if we're all in this together? I'll give you an example. One of my favorite companies in the world is Publix Grocery Stores. They're employee-owned and they have just amazing culture there of investment. Their employees are invested and they have incredible high levels of loyalty at Publix. Here's a good story that, that demonstrate this. So you're getting your employees to be invested in your success. So successful teams, the coach stays up at night. They lose sleep at night thinking about the challenges of the team. Assistant coaches, they do their job. They punch in, they punch out. They're happy to be around the team. They like their craft. But assistant coaches don't lose sleep over team problems the way the head coach does. Now, the same thing translates to companies. Managers don't lose sleep over those big issues. However, really successful teams, the assistant coaches, the managers, they obsess over that statement. They're invested. They're not just interested in the team, they're invested. So I'm at Publix and I'm walking down this aisle and I see this elderly gentleman shopping and he's confused. He can't find the peanut butter. And he walks up to this Publix employee, Brian, and Brian's this young man stalking the shelves. And the, the young man goes, or the customer goes, excuse me, I can't find the peanut butter. Can you help? Brian immediately stops what he's doing, sets down his boxes and says, certainly, sir. And he physically walks that gentleman to the aisle where the peanut butter and he points right at the peanut butter. And Brian says, they're right here, sir. Is there anything else I can do to help you? I thought to myself, wow, that's above and beyond customer service because sufficient service would have been peanut butter is in aisle four or peanut butter is over by the bit. See, Publix wasn't interested in sufficient service. They want superior service and that's investment. So getting your employees to have that mindset comes from recognizing, rewarding, and creating an environment where that is prioritized. So I came to learn that that's standard operating procedure at Publix. When a customer asks you where something is, you should physically walk them. And think of that customer. You develop tremendous loyalty to that country because they went out of their way to help you. Publix has enviable levels of loyalty and they don't offer any kind of loyalty card or membership like that. People are loyal to them because of how they're treated. It's that experience. It's the relationship that they have because the employees are taught to set a higher standard. That what matters is the customer experience is more important than getting that carton of whatever it was unpacking, maybe paper towels on the shelf. Customer experience comes first. What have you found makes the biggest difference with helping employees who maybe never had that perspective before reprioritize the customer coming first? Or in other instances with other companies, it might be something different, but it's causing that shift where people are saying, oh, I get it. It's not that people are going to be looking at me based upon the task I was assigned, but also how I adapted to a question that was posed to me by one of our customers. The reason that we're all here. Happiness. I know that sounds hoke, but 
I think everybody wants happiness in their life and the rewarding feeling that comes from knowing you serve something greater than yourself leads to happiness. When the leader of the company goes out of their way to facilitate occasions for their staff and their employees to develop happiness, they become endeared to them and to their company. That's a simple answer, but I think it really is that simple. What it also speaks to is that the leader of the company, whether it's the store manager, whether it's the district manager, whether it's the founder of the company, needs to be able to convey that personally. They find pleasure in doing that because you need to have that as a foundation before you're instructing other people to do it. How quickly would it break down if the managers were saying one thing, but then the first time a customer came to a manager who was walking in the store and the manager said, well, I'll get someone to help you rather than helping them themselves, how quickly that would break down, right? It would. It absolutely would because you're serving something greater in self. It's not just for you, you're something beyond you. It's the, the euphoric feeling that comes with that. And I think we all crave that. In your book, you mention a loyalty test where you say, imagine having a car and putting your dog in the car and driving around for an hour and then having a car, maybe a different car, and then putting your spouse in the trunk and driving around for an hour. And then at the end of the hour, opening it up and asking people which individual inside the trunk would greet you with more affection. My question for you is, could you expand on that? Also, how many times did you have to run that experiment before you started encouraging others to do it? It's interesting because that was very debated whether that story should be in the book. Now, we very much were to cancel culture now, and that certainly isn't politically correct. So we played a lot with the, the verbiage of where should we choose my mother-in-law? Who should be in the trunk? I think at some point we have mature enough people to see beyond that, that you see, all right, what's the essence of the story? So I didn't have to do the story that I didn't have to do the experience that many times, sir. But I think here's what that story illustrates. Loyalty is incredibly mis understood. There's a quiz you can now go to my website and take, and it assesses the five key behaviors of good teammates. I use the, the acronym ALIVE. That stands for active, loyal, invested, viral, and empathetic. And I'm working on my next book, and I've been studying the results of the quiz. Historically, people score the lowest in the loyalty category. I think it's because they don't understand what loyalty is. People assume they're entitled to loyalty. You certainly want to give people a reason to be loyal to you, but that dog is loyal to you not because you've earned his loyalty, it's because he believes. So people who are good teammates are loyal to things they believe in, not necessarily from what they get back. They, everybody wants, well, I'll get your back if you get my back. That's not loyalty, that's bartering. Good teammates are loyal to things. They've got your back. Whether you've got theirs or not, they've got yours because they believe in the entity that is the team. That individual is part of the team. When you take that perspective, when you take that perspective, I think it really changes the level of commitment people are willing to make. Can you talk about a client example where you've worked with an organization to help them understand and line around that belief in something that the company stands for that helps people increase their loyalty or commitment to going the extra mile. I was working with a private company that runs juvenile detention centers for youth, court-appointed youth uh, offenders. It is very much a good business and it's a worthwhile business. And they're outside the, the central Pennsylvania area. And there was one of their staff members, this was a guy named Jimmy. And Jimmy's very classic, typical employee, punch in, punch out, do your job. And trying to get Jimmy to see that there was more to my job than just doing that was difficult. The company was relying, well, that's not how we've done it here. We've always done it this way in the past. This is our culture and this is what you're supposed to do. That didn't necessarily align with Jimmy's belief. And the reason is Jimmy saw no purpose in his Jimmy's like all of us we're all after happiness happiness is a mathematical formula service leads to purpose leads to happiness what we did I went in I worked with him we got Jimmy to understand the value of his work he was really serving those his clients the juveniles that were
were at his center. So when he saw the purpose behind it, 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 his work took on new meaning and he saw himself as being something bigger than just himself. He found happiness in his life. And, you know, that came from him being a better teammate. Could you go through a couple before and after examples? Before he might not attend to a need that one of the juvenile delinquents in the center had, but now he was anticipating needs. Before he wouldn't look to refill this. Now he was doing it and anticipating because he certainly got what the service was about. Yeah. One of Jimmy's uh, biggest complaints was, it's not my job. That led to a lot of conflicts at their organization between there'd be meetings between Jimmy and his manager. That's not my job. That's somebody else's job. So here's what would happen. Jimmy would walk down the hallway. He'd see one of the garbage cans overflowing and we'd walk by and you'd think maintenance isn't doing their job and he'd walk on. Once Jimmy saw purpose and he saw that if I clean that garbage can up and I create an environment here that shows a commitment to excellence, students, our clients start picking up on this and it reinforces our culture values. So Jimmy would eventually walk by, say, that's filled up. I'm just going to do it because good teammates don't worry about whose job they are focused on fulfilling the job because good teammates don't blame, shame, or complain. They act. Once we got Jimmy to act, we saw a much different result with him. And the company saw a lot different result. With him. That's really interesting. I think that making that criteria become internal rather than external makes a huge difference, not just for people who are on the front line, but for everyone in the company to be able to really understand how your day-to-day -day actions make a difference in the overall success of the organization and the success of the people it serves. Let's tell me, What's a way that you help people become more invested in the mission, in the purpose of a company? What kinds of questions do you ask people in order for them to consider that and start to own it? When I come into a company, one of the first things I do is, is we do this exercise on values. And on the screen, I'll put up a, a list of values. And I'll say, I'm going to give you a minute and a half. And I want you to narrow down to the six values that mean the most to you. Then I'll come back and I'll say, All right, I'm going to give you 10 seconds. You've got to narrow this list down to the one value that means the most. Now, those six and one, I'll come back into play here shortly. So they'll get, they'll pick your value. Then I'll go around the room and I'll ask them, all right, Sarah, what is your one value? She'll say trust. Now, so why did you pick trust? Just, well, when I was a kid, I came from a broken home. My parents were divorced and I'd always say, my dad, you're going to come to a soccer game Saturday. My dad, yeah, I'll show up. Saturday came, never showed up. So Sarah eventually developed an issue with trust. Now that was important for her colleagues to understand because it's great to know what is important to you, but can you share what is important to you in a tactful manner with your colleagues? So once other people around the learn that, including her immediate supervisor, they learned that if they made a promise to Sarah and they broke it, even if it was unintentional, something came up and they didn't fulfill that promise. Sarah said, hey, we need to meet about this on Friday. Can we meet at one o'clock? Yes, secretary quits it on the calendar. They meet at one o'clock. Friday afternoon comes, her supervisor has an emergency with her husband. She's got to leave the office and she left early. Never tell Sarah. So Sarah says, she blew me off. We didn't meet. Sarah develops an issue with trust because now her supervisor is lumped into that same category that her parents were. Now, had her supervisor been aware of how important trust was to Sarah, she could have been forward thinking and said, hey, look, Sarah, I'm so sorry this came up, but I promise we're going to meet Monday on this. I haven't forgotten about it. Now, it seems like manners, but when we get caught in a hustle bustle of our workflow, we forget those things. It's all about trust. Now, to many employees, that might have been a non-issue, but to Sarah, it was important. So anyhow, we do this list, we narrow it down, and then I'll go to the supervisor, the boss, the CEO, whoever it has, the most senior member in the room, and I'll say, I want you all to predict your boss's value. 
value. They'll all write it down and then I'll have the boss reveal it. It's curious to me to see how many of them knew that much about their boss. What I say to the leader is, all right, it's your job as the leader to know everyone on your team's value. That's their hot button. That is going to be an effect relationship. But as an employee, it's your job to seek out your most senior members, your boss's value, because the fragility of your relationship with them is going to hinge on your understanding of that value. So it's a very impactful exercise we do. I'm thinking to myself how important it is to have those discussions and make it explicit because I think a lot of people wouldn't even be aware of what value they would pick or why it's important to them initially. We downplay the importance of water cooler talk. It's inefficient. But here's the reality. How do you figure out your boss? How do you figure out your colleague's value? You can't go up to them and say, hey, I need you to take this quiz real quick because I need the results on this. We're going to have a better relationship. No, you do those things by asking probing questions. I worked with this guy named George years ago and George was the most laugh likable person in the office. He was our top salesman and I worked at a radio station. It wasn't the on-air talent who was the most beloved. It was George had this unique ability to really draw people in and connect to them. What made him such a great salesman? So you'd walk down the hall and you'd say to George, hey, George, how's it going? Most people would say, fine, good. How about you? George would always come back with, what's going better now than it was 10 minutes ago? Because you immediately thought, what happened 10 minutes ago? Then George would launch into this story. It's usually self-deprecating and it endeared you to George and you build a connection with him. I think as supervisors, you need to do that with your employees. As an employee, you need to do that with your colleagues because that's how you, you strengthen those bonds. But It's not always a story where George would have been the hero of the story. As you said, it's self-deprecating. Maybe he was the victim in the story and he just brought you along so it's something you could relate to. Yeah, George would walk in every morning. He had like jelly on his tie from the bagel he ate for breakfast or his pant leg would be all wet because he got out of his car and he, he stepped in the mud puddle out of it. And he's just a very everyday man. And there's nothing special or flashy about it, but people loved him because they felt trusted and they felt comfortable. And that revealing of those stories built trust with him. Yeah. He was looking to share what his life was like. And that's important for people to remember. It's something where people struggle with this from stories I've heard from people who are managing remotely and they don't know how to gain that access to what people value you without having those explicit conversations because people aren't sharing like they would in an office and aspects of their lives may be revealed and people have different issues with that. What I want to ask you, Lance, is what is a method or technique that you found that's successful for managers to have better conversations where people could share these important values with each other and with the team, have it be respected so that it leads to more investment and more empathy among the people on a team with people within a company. There's an old analogy in coaching, touch when you're giving, not when you're taking. And if you're going to, it's a sports analogy, but if the coach is going to berate a kid, he did something wrong or she did something wrong and you're going to really yell at him, don't put your arm around him at that because that child or that athlete is very defensive at that moment. Now, what you're doing is you're taking away their self-esteem, you're taking away their pride. Now, if you're giving them, you're heaping them praise, you that's the time you want to give them the pat on the back and give them that arm around their shorts. Hey, man, I'm so proud of you. That was a great job. I think there has to be a version of that. Now, obviously, there's political correct issues and come into play there in the office place, but there has to be a, a version of that with your employees. And I think it is when you share stories, share the positive stories with people who are below you. Tell them those self-deprecating stories, but don't voice your complaints to those employees. Reserve those complaints, your issues for more former settings. The informer ones, maximize that time with the positive, encouraging, self-deprecating. People like them and keep them brief. But the real key is use your story to start the relationship, to start the interaction and let it fuel you becoming a good 
listener because everybody's favorite topic is themselves. So George, I stepped in that mud puddle today. Oh, it's terrible. Has that ever happened to you? And whatever they go with, feed off that, encourage it because that endears them the relationship. And it lets you learn something. about. In your book, I also remember you talking about the importance of listening with the intention to hear what's being said, not with the intention of getting ready to reply. That's the greatest failure of human communication, isn't it? We're always thinking about the next thing we want to say. Two seconds ago, I did it to you, Bill, and shame on me. I'm thinking about response and I didn't really hear the last part of it. So you have to suppress that urge to respond and amplify that urge to absorb. There's some tricks for this. One of the, I don't know if it's called a ninja trick or a Jedi mind trick or a life act, whatever you want to call it. One of the things I have learned, it is very effective for me is when someone is listening, I used to look at their face in general, it's a very broad picture. And then I look at both of their eyes. I now zoom in on just one of their eyes while my focus is now laser accurate. And if you make an analogy to sports, geez, I keep doing these, but in other sports now, when you're teaching uh, young kids to shoot, they don't just aim at the basket or the, you know, they're hitting a baseball, aim for the ball. You pick out one specific spot in the ball, you're the very, very front of the rim and zero in on that, you improve your focus. And I think when you want to be a good listener, you've got to apply that same mentality. It's been very effective for me since I've started doing that. That brings us to the lightning round. Are you ready for the my quest for the best lightning round, Lance? I will bring it on. We started at the beginning of the interview and talked about someone who influenced and inspired you. And you talked about your chorus teacher. When you were a teenager, Lance, what's a song that you love? Sweet Georgia Brown. I was like, the theme to the Harlem Globetrotters, the happiest song on earth. That song has been so important to me. And it was even back then because it represented a happy moment in my life. I didn't have a great relationship with my father. But I remember my father took me to see the Harlem Globetrotters when I was younger and it is a happy memory. That song, it brings back that happy memory. The key to success, connect a memory to a melody. That's what I did with that song. Now, see, so you're testing my vocal skills. Miss Smith would be proud. My wife's embarrassed, I'm sure. Lance, your mission is to help people become better teammates and more valuable teammates. What is it that you found to be the most effective way of getting the word out about your mission? I just simulated a message to our, I have a weekly blog and a new newsletter. It's become very popular. It's grown exponentially. So telling those stories, like the story about George, the story about the peanut butter at Publix, those stories are included in my blog every week. They come out every Tuesday. We call it Teammate Tuesday. So that's been a great message. I share those tidbits and I share daily thoughts on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, just thoughts. You start your day off with the thought of what it means to be a good teammate. And as you're driving to work, that thought starts creeping into your psyche and you see it manifest during your day. What would you say is the best advice you've received in your professional, your adult life? So many have been impactful. I think lately, the one that I was taught to me long ago, but I think about it a lot lately is it's more important for it to be about we than me. And when you, your purpose is serving your team, you don't have to worry about finding happiness because happiness finds you. So I remind myself that constantly. We is better than me. And when I'm making decisions or when I go places, I that we better than me. What would you say is the best $100 or so purchase you've made in the last six months? My AirPods. What would you say is the worst piece of advice you've ever received? You do you or take care of you because that's become very popular in our society right now. And I understand the origins of it. That methodology leads temporary pleasure and long-term regrets. People on their deathbed don't look back at their life, you know, that when they're surrounded by their loved ones and they know they lived a life of purpose and they know they served a greater calling, they're much happier with the assessment of their life. So that would be the worst. What would you say has been the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? Good question. So I don't have a, I don't have a lot of bad habits and the ones I do have, I've been very 
unsuccessful at kicking. I'll say this. I have become much more attuned at the importance of hydration. I drink way more water than I used to. So I don't know if that's uh, abandoning a bad habit of not drinking water, if I'm going to put a twist on it that way, or I, I drink sodas and things of that nature. I drink way more water now. And I've come to, to me, water, proper hydration is equated to unselfishness. Because what would happen, I would drink coffee and I would get dehydrated throughout the day. I became lethargic. I became irritable. I wasn't in my best version of myself when it came to interacting with people. Once I started really being deliberate, intentional about my hydration intake, and I know when I'm drinking my water or what times, I'm in a much better mood way more often. I have way more energy than I used to. So that that is been impactful to me. It's interesting. Do you also think that because you've become stronger with being intentional with your drink, that's led to other areas of life where it's strengthened your ability to be intentional and clear as well. It certainly has because <laughs> you've had positive reinforcement. I've tried something and it, now I think about those micro habits all the time because now I'm constant. What other habits can I improve? So I think one of the reasons, I know it sounds arrogant, Bill, and it's not intended to, but I don't have a lot of bad habits because I'm, I'm consciously aware of that and I commit to eliminating those or not, at, not starting them to begin with. Let's, you've been so generous in sharing your thoughts and your experience and advice with us. I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best and talking about the early influence of Mrs. Smith, who was a chorus teacher who had a huge influence in your life and gave you some of these foundations of what it's like to have interactions and make them positive from the beginning right to the end. Talking about the importance of bringing the right teammates together who have the right skills and the right attitudes and can't always pick our ideal teams, but we can work with the, the team that we have and improve them. We talked about the examples in the public's grocery store and Brian being able to follow someone down the aisle to show them the peanut butter made a big difference. That's a customer experience example that we all should be reminded of, of going the extra mile to help people understand and have a better experience at the store or in our workplace or wherever we're serving. It comes back to believing in what you're doing so that you serve them better. Being able to look at the example with Jimmy and being able to understand and make the connection between the service that you give, how it serves a larger purpose, and how that connection leads to happiness was really important. I know that people listening to that are going to have a great time dissecting that and applying it in their business. And then being intentional about listening so that you're really taking in what the person is saying rather than thinking about how you're going to respond has made a difference. And we talked last about the intentionality with water and how when you're intentional about anything, it helps you be more potential about everything. I'm sure T. Harbecker would be smiling as we had that shared moment. For <laughs> these reasons and so many more, Lance, I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. In the words of a Chick-fil-A employee, the pleasure was mine. Lance, before we say goodbye for now, tell me, where is it we can find out more about you and your work online? CoachLoya.com. C-O-A-C-H-L-O-Y-A.com. All of my uh, connections are there. We're going to link to CoachLoya.com. We're going to link to your other websites, places to buy your book and your social media so that anyone listening to this can go to the show notes. It's super easy to find out what you've been doing and what you're up to now with helping people become better teammates and more valuable to their organization. So once again, Lance Loya, author of The We Gear, How Good Teammates Shift From Me to We, thank you again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thank you, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. 
My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.